Marge. I'm Leonard Lopate. Michael Maida-Webster is an expert in ecology, conservation, philanthropy, and nonprofit management research and a professor of practice in the Department of Environmental Studies at New York University. In his new book, The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth, he discusses how organisms and ecosystems adapt to environmental change and how that information can be translated into effective conservation strategies. It's published by Timber Brooks and brings Professor Webster to our show now. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Mass extinctions have occurred many times throughout the history of uh, the three point billion years of life on Earth. Aren't extinction rates increasing caused directly or indirectly by humans? Absolutely. Yeah, there's lots of evidence that extinction rates are increasing. Um, you know, you can look at different sources, but a lot of people would argue they've gone up about a thousand fold in the you know, sort of recent history because of human activities. Um, so, yeah, they're going up. The other thing to keep in mind, though, when you look at those other mass extinctions, in, in those a large fraction of the species on Earth were lost in a relatively short period of time. You know, whether we are headed for that at, right now remains to be seen because we actually still have almost all the species that we started with. It's a really pretty small fraction we've lost so far. Well, you cite recent extinctions of passenger pigeons and Tasmanian tigers. Pigeons? Why pigeons? What do we do to kill them off? Uh, passenger pigeons? Well, that, that example is one that was largely due to hunting. Um, it was a, a source of food when um, uh, uh, populations were increasing in North America. There were billions of these birds, and you could shoot them and uh, you know salt them and send them to market and make some money off of it. So it was actually in a pretty short period of time that people wiped out uh, what was probably the most abundant bird on the planet, um, they took it from that state to extinct in, you know, most of that happened within a few decades. Obviously, uh, climate change comes to mind when we discuss this. Is it just the latest threat? Yeah, I think that's exactly the right way to think about it. If you look at um, what's happened on the planet from people, you know, in the last few hundred uh, years, what we've really done is a whole bunch of different changes to how the planet works. You know, it started with like hunting and removing animals to eat. It moved on to things like transforming landscapes for agriculture and cities. Today, we're accidentally and purposely moving species all over the world. And so all those kinds of things have been happening for a relatively long time. And that what we're seeing now is added on to all that is that the environmental conditions in different places around the world are all shifting. But is this book a cautiously optimistic look at climate change? It is. And the reason that it's cautiously optimistic is actually in the title. And the title is The Rescue Effect. And in the book, I define the rescue effect as the inherent tendency of nature to adjust when the environment changes. All organisms, all populations, all species have a bunch of different tools for adjusting to a changing world. And these tools turn on automatically. Collectively, they add up to what I call the rescue effect. And so far, the vast majority of species on the planet appear to be adjusting to the changes that they've experienced so far. That's really good news for conservation because it shows us that life is really pretty good at adapting. And then on top of that, there's a whole bunch of things that we can do when we choose to intervene on behalf of species or populations to help them persist. So the rescue effect tends to automatically kick in when organisms are stressed or declining? That's the that's the, exactly the right definition. Yeah. So this is things like, 
you know, many organisms will experience a change in their physiology when the temperature changes or when something changes in their environment, and it helps them sort of automatically calibrate and adjust. That happens to individuals and it tends to happen very quickly. And there are processes like that going on all the way up to some organisms are already starting to evolve to um, survive in new conditions. Well, I, I would think that most people see the current situation as depressing, but are you saying that there are good reasons to expect a bright future? Absolutely. Listen, I would say that we are at something of a crossroads. When we look at the diversity of life on Earth, particularly the species that are here, almost all of them are still around. And we have choices about what our future is going to look like. And if we'd like to have most of those species make it through and continue to persist uh, for centuries to come, we very much have the ability to do that. Part of that is because of the rescue effect in nature, which is strong and will always be helping us. Part of that is also because of the tools we have to uh, help nature in that process. So we don't have to see conservation is something that's inherently bleak and depressing. There are certainly examples that, you know, will, that, that fall into that category. But overall, I think we actually have an opportunity here to help make sure that most uh, kinds of life can persist. So you're saying that when nature is and owes up to the task, we can help. Has Absolutely. That, has that always been the case? Um, how far back does that go? Were uh, cavemen already thinking along these lines? I really doubt it. And I think that the idea that people would intervene to help uh, uh, protect species and keep them from going extinct is a relatively recent idea um, uh, for people. And for a long time, people didn't believe you could cause the extinction of a species. Um, we have ample evidence now that that's not true. But, you know, the global efforts to try and protect species and diversity around the world really, you know, they got going in earnest probably in the middle of the last century. And so we haven't been doing you know, extensive, active efforts to protect and bring back species for very long. And some we wouldn't want to bring back, like the dinosaurs. Yeah, well, that would obviously create a whole slew of problems that you, know, you, can, you, can, you can imagine in your Although, Jurassic Park movies. But you know, one of the since, things- Since birds are the descendants of dinosaurs, is that an example of the sort of thing that you're discussing here? Uh, yeah, it is in a long-term perspective. You know, you can you you can argue the the dinosaurs didn't go extinct. That the that the last remaining species of dinosaurs evolved into birds, and so as descendants of dinosaurs, you know, birds uh, are arguably the dinosaurs of today. Um, certainly, the organisms whose uh, fossils we find from sixty-six million years ago and farther back, there's nothing like those on the planet today. We don't seem to be doing a very good job at stemming global warming. Are you saying there's a natural resiliency that will help reverse the effects of climate change that um, I'm not hearing about on, on, the, on the news reports? Uh, to be clear, I'm not saying that. That sounds lovely, but that's not my understanding. Um, uh, no. Uh, in fact, climate change is probably becoming quickly the biggest threat for different species around the planet. And the reason for that is if we think about any given organism, it lives in a particular place, it has a particular climate, it has particular needs that allow it to live and persist there. But really for every organism in every place on the planet, those conditions are changing. And what it means is that more and more species are gonna start feeling that change and they're gonna to have to figure out whether or not they can adapt to that change. The rescue effect is powerful in nature and will help many of those species do that automatically, but it's not all powerful in nature and it has its limits. 
And so I think the risk is that we don't do anything about climate change and we just continue on the kind of trajectory we're on right now, in which case we will start to lose more and more different species because the climate is changing. But we have an alternative to that. If we begin to bend the, the greenhouse gas emission curve and get climate change under a little bit more control, you know, there's, there's much better reason to think that a lot of organisms are going to be able to keep up and they are going to be able to survive. You know, I've done most of my work on coral reefs and corals, and some of the modeling that we've done shows exactly that, which is corals may be able to adapt to a changing world, um, but they probably can't do it if we don't do anything about climate change. And, and uh, the corals are uh, dying off as a result of climate change, aren't they, coral reefs? They sure are as a delta of climate, as a result of climate change, as a result of pollution, as a result of a whole bunch of different things. And we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years, huge declines in corals on coral reefs. And this is one of the reasons I you know, started looking at these questions, because that's the area where I was working. And one of the questions that I was really interested in, in the coral realm is, well, how does this end? Are we on a, uh, you know, a, a course that corals are necessarily going to disappear and coral reefs are going to disappear from the planet, or are there reasons to believe that corals are going to be able to adjust to this kind of changing world? Based on what we've been able to find looking at sort of the best available data and building models with a bunch of colleagues, um, uh, our conclusion is largely that corals are actually able to adjust to a fair bit of change and we should expect them to be able to do so. We should even expect them to begin to evolve, particularly to be able to live in higher temperature water. But again, those uh, um, projections that corals may be able to do this really do hinge on whether we choose to do anything about climate change. Should I assume that there were some corals that were already there that would ha have not been affected and they're the ones that are going to thrive now that others are dying off? That's exactly how this could work, right? So you're getting at um, one of the ideas that comes up in the book, which is evolutionary rescue. So if you imagine a group of organisms, say corals, in the ocean, some of those corals individuals are going to be better at surviving at higher temperatures than others. If their ability to do that is related to their genes and they then reproduce and pass those genes onto the next generation, that next generation may well inherit that trait. So when we get um, uh, what's called coral bleaching, when the water gets really warm and many corals often die, if you get some corals that survive because they've got the right genes and other corals that die because they don't, well, that's evolution in process. And we should expect the next generation of those survivors to be better at dealing with high temperatures. That kind of thing is probably happening with species all over the world right now as the climate is changing and they are going through these cycles of um, selection where some survive and some don't. And again, if that's related to their genes, then this is something that should help them evolve. Have we seen something similar in human development? After all, we, uh, most of us carry Neanderthal genes, but the Neanderthals are gone. Yeah, and I'm no expert on human genetics, but I do think there are examples where we can see sort of evolution and natural selection. For example, I think there's some evidence from like the Black Plague that shows that the people who survived the Black Plague were somewhat different genetically from those who succumbed to the Black Plague in Europe. And so you can imagine events like that, they could actually change our evolution as a species. And does the same sort of process occur with other animals? Uh, have we been tracking that with other animals? Pigs and yeah. horses uh, and the, the like? 
the short answer is absolutely. And there's plenty of examples in science of people showing that evolution, you know, is happening and you can measure it in relatively short periods of time. There's a smaller number of examples that are starting to emerge that show that organisms are adapting, they're evolving on the timescales we generally think of around conservation over the period of decades, um, uh, taking on new traits, changing um, in response to changes in their environment. And so one of the things that we're starting to realize in conservation is that evolution may actually be something that really helps species as they're dealing with this kind of environmental change. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Michael Meta-Webster. His latest book, The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth, published by Timber Press, which is a division of Hachette. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM. And uh, we are streaming live at WBAI.org. Doesn't temperature increase uh, have an ef- uh, affect the amount of rainfall? Aren't we seeing a growth of desertification around the world? So uh, this is not my specialty area, but the short answer to this question is yes. You know, you when you change the temperature, you're changing the um, amount of evaporation of water. You're changing how uh, energy moves through the atmosphere and ground. And you would expect all kinds of changes to environmental conditions related not just to temperature, but also to precipitation. Um, uh, uh, so, yes, those kinds of things are starting to happen. And what that means is that no matter where you are on this planet, you know, every organism is starting at least to feel the effects of climate change. Well, I, I'd imagine that now that the uh, Mississippi River, for example, uh, has lost an awful lot of water, that animals that depended on the Mississippi are suffering as a result. Yeah. And those extreme events like a drought or extreme rainfall or extreme high temperature or extreme low temperature, those are the kinds of things that can have a huge impact on organisms because they can drive, you know, lots and lots of mortality for organisms where maybe you, maybe you get many that die during uh, a period like this. Perhaps they'll recover once, you know, if we start getting more rain or, or whatnot. But absolutely, these extreme weather events that we're seeing will have a really big effect on, on wildlife. And the heat, because of the heat, there's been a rise in sea level from ocean warming and ice sheet melting. Salty areas are becoming saltier. Fresher areas are becoming less salty. Um, That has to have a major impact not only on coral, but on all of the uh, creatures that live in the oceans and the seas. Absolutely. And, you know, the ones that will be most affected by things like sea level rise will be those that live in shallow water. Now, a lot of those creatures can probably over time relocate to, you know, new locations to find sort of the water depth that they would, they would like to live in. And we'll, we're definitely seeing some of that pattern, like seagrasses might move a little bit higher up in the salt marsh uh, to a little bit higher elevation. But there is actually um, a, a really, I think you could say, tragic example of a species extinction that was uh, most likely caused by this. And this was of a little species of rodent that lived on an island um, in northeastern Australia that uh, uh, lived on this little island. No, no, this is called the Bramble Chemolomies. And this little guy ate plants on its low-lying island. The problem was that with sea level rise and big storms, the the island got inundated with saltwater, and the saltwater killed the plants. And this little species, as far as we know, starved to extinction. Well, mountain pygmy possums uh, are also uh, 
going extinct. Uh, when when we talked about the the uh, the oceans becoming uh, less hospitable to some of the uh, creatures that live there, isn't that what led uh, fish initially to go on land way back when? So is it that that the same sort of process? Are we seeing things occurring again and again? I don't think those two are quite the same. And the evolution of what you're talking about is the evolution yeah. of land vertebrates. Um, that was a very slow process that essentially it gave some what were fish an advantage that other fish didn't have, which was access to a new environment. It wasn't necessarily that the ocean was a problem. Um, it was more that there was an opportunity to be had on land, which if you look at the descendants of those fish, things like reptiles, amphibians, birds, us, um, we've done rather well at a global scale by moving onto land. So that one's not quite the same, um, but uh, there certainly are pressures in the ocean. The oceans certainly are changing. And what we're seeing very quickly in the oceans is that organisms are starting to move where they're found. So organisms that we typically associate in one place are moving to new locations. And this is part of life sort of reshuffling as the climate changes. And we're going to see lots more of that to come. And that is something that's happened uh, over the whole course of history, hominids moved because of climate change then in the past, no? Absolutely. And, um, you know, you think about it, so from where, you know, in North America, much of this country was covered in ice during the last ice age, uh, in which case there wasn't really much living there at all. And then when the ice retreated in the north, all of that land was colonized by fish and by birds and by plants and now there's forests and lakes and all these different habitats that didn't exist before. We know that organisms are actually very good over time at getting to new locations and taking advantage of new opportunities. And we're starting to see the signals of that same kind of change happening on the planet to the point where there's a whole scientific conference now called Species on the Move that is about the the different kinds of life around the world that are redistributing themselves. They're moving to different locations in responses to changes in their environment. And, you know, in North in Northern Hemisphere, the general prediction is that species in the South will tend to move toward the North to sort of try and track or find the climate that they prefer. Similarly, in mountains, a lot of species will move from low elevation to higher elevation to try and find the, the climate that they prefer. But then they will run into other animals including humans. Will that have an, um, impact, an impact? Are we For just, sure. I mean, we're, yeah, we're not just going is, to welcome any animal that's coming from the South, are we? No, and there's two different reasons why we might not. Sometimes people don't like new species coming into a region because they see them as invasive and problematic, and just their presence there is a problem in and of itself because maybe they will affect species that people are accustomed to seeing, or they'll change an ecosystem in a way they don't like. So that's well, well they'll start um, they'll start attacking local species. Uh, well, so for, for their food. That's the that's the other problem, which is some species people just really don't like to have in the neighborhood. Hmm. Um, one of the chapters in the book is about tigers in India. And one of the challenges with tigers in India is that they've largely been confined to a network of parks in India um, where, you know, people uh, for the most part don't live and the tigers are sort of given a little bit of space. But when tigers decide to move um, to go uh, outside of the park, it creates lots of risk for conflict. In some places, people are trying to develop what are called wildlife corridors, which are sort of, you think of as sort of like highways of wild lands that species like tigers or deer or whatever can travel and allow them to move from one park to another. That might reduce the amount of conflict a little bit as long as the animals are willing to try and 
and stay away from people and try and um, uh, keep to those um, uh, corridor habitats. And there's some evidence that that works. Extinctions in the past were sometimes caused by a large event like a meteor hitting the Earth. Now, uh, isn't NASA working to eliminate some of that, like that, from happening in the future? We just did a recent test to destroy a meteorite. Sure, and the the really famous example you're talking about was hmm. the big chunk of rock that brought about the end of the dinosaurs. That happened about 66 million years ago. It hit um, what in what is now the Gulf of Mexico, just sort of north of the Yucatan Peninsula. And that uh, was a big enough impact that it caused probably earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. There was a recent paper that was arguing that it might have made a mile high tsunami that went around the world. Lots of things would have been killed immediately with all that impact. But beyond that, it created a dust cloud and a vapor cloud in the atmosphere that probably brought about some global cooling, sort of like a nuclear winter that would have shut down a lot of the plant growth. And so lots of organisms probably froze or starved to death in the wake of that impact. Now, th that's probably one of the biggest like single events in our planet's history in terms of changing um, the light, life and diversity of life. And as we talked about earlier, that's what brought about the end of the dinosaurs. Um, the chance of something like that happen in any given year is really, really, really low. I mean, it's, it hasn't happened for 66 million years. I don't think we've got to be worried about it, you know, happening next year. That said, you are correct that one of the things that NASA was trying to do was to figure out if we detect a piece of rock hurtling toward the planet like that, do we have any options for trying to direct its flow or its uh, um, trajectory elsewhere to avoid hitting the Earth? And as, as I recall from the articles I read on that, uh, it sounds like that test was reasonably successful. Haven't we done uh, a human version of that with the dropping of uh, atomic of nuclear weapons? A human version of what? The, the, using nuclear weapons, atomic bombs. Uh, yes, but not at the scale that is caused has caused a global nuclear well, winter. But we're still um, we're still faced with the possibility of it even today. Uh, absolutely. I mean, as long as there are nuclear weapons and countries that, you know, would consider using them, that is that, you know, I, I was a, a child in the 80s, and that was something we worried about a lot during that uh, era. And it's not as though that risk has just disappeared from the planet. Um, uh, if humans chose to, particularly those who have access to those uh, weapons, yeah, that is a that's a possible future scenario for us. I certainly hope it's not a likely one. Well, what happens is certain things are destroyed forever by the by meteorites or by atomic bombs and others survive is that because or because they've adapted or just because they already had built-in resistance uh probably a mix of both um anytime there's a big disturbance you know there are some uh winners and losers in that process and that can happen in terms of evolution that can also happen in terms of change you know some species going extinct and other ones persisting um that's a common story on our planet that's happened plenty of times in the planet's history in a to a large degree that's the kind of situation we are in the process of creating with all the things we were talking about earlier and the, all the environmental change including climate change on our planet so we're sort of setting up a set of circumstances where you know many different organisms and species are going to be tested to see whether that whether or not they can keep up with our changing world. What about things like overfishing? Is yeah, it... so over. Oh, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. 
overfishing is when you, you know, harvest too many fish and you cause the population to um, sort of become unproductive or decline. Uh, you know, we've got a mixed track record globally on fisheries with some fisheries that have been heavily overfished in the past and others that have been more sustainably fished. I actually write in the book about one of the most sustainably managed fisheries that we know of for um, sockeye salmon in Bristol Bay, Alaska. Um, but not all fishery stories are as good as, as that one. What I will say is if you look at the major fisheries around the world, many of them right now are being managed in a way where they're reasonably sustainable, um, where people are able to catch fish year after year and those populations are not disappearing. However, that is going to get more complicated with climate change because it's it's going to do things like change where those species are living or how abundant they are. And so we'll have to adjust our fisheries uh, periodically because the, the, the climate will be changing uh, in ways that may be unpredictable in those fisheries. The fish will be moving to friendlier waters. That's part they of the rescue be. effect? Yeah, it is. It, and it, that ability to move to a new location that suits you better. And the ocean species are moving around a lot faster in the ocean than they are on land, partly because it's easier to move around in the ocean. A lot of them have um, a larval phase that uh, drifts away in the currents and it's sort of easy to get to new places uh, in the ocean more so than on land. Um, and so we are seeing species move around pretty quickly. And um, sometimes that's going to result in people who used to catch a particular species in one place, that species may not be found there anymore. You know, there's the recent stories about um, some of the crab fisheries in the Bering Sea where there have been disappearance of large numbers of crabs. Now that could be just, you know, a couple of bad years and that population has declined and maybe it will be rebounding, or maybe it's going through a bigger set of changes and maybe that species will be found in different places in the future, further up in the Arctic or in Russia. Russian waters. Um, I don't think that we've yet got a clear answer to what's going on in that in that system, but the fact that we're seeing changes like that, that in and of itself is not a great surprise. We're now seeing things like sharks going into uh, areas where uh, humans swim, uh, where they didn't go before. Uh, maybe. I mean, listen, the sharks probably are thinking that humans are swimming in their space rather than the rather than vice versa. You know, sharks have been around for a long, long time, and many sharks travel long distances, and so they do move around. Now, it's entirely possible that the places that sharks are going is changing, just like many species in the ocean are changing, and that could be related to things like climate change. So uh, what we're saying here is that that we just adjust, no? Or is there something more going on? Well, nature is adjusting on its own, and we have the ability to help nature uh, adjust further. So when we get worried about particular species, we have the opportunity to step in. You mentioned the mountain pygmy possums earlier. It's probably a species that very few people have heard of. This is a little um, marsupial in Australia that lives in snowy mountains in southeastern Australia. Uh, that uh, is looking like it's getting in more and more trouble, partly because of climate change. And there are real concerns about whether this species can persist in its native environment. And people are starting to propose collecting them and moving them to new locations to try and help them survive on their own. If we just did nothing for that species, it would probably go extinct. But we do have the ability to intervene. We just have to decide how do we want to intervene. And in this case, like I said, one proposal is to scoop up some of those little pygmy possums and take them somewhere else and see if you can establish a population in a new location. Another example is the uh, cichlid fish in the Great Rift Lakes of Africa. 
Yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's another one that uh, many people probably have never heard of. It's absolutely a fascinating story. There are these huge lakes in Africa, um, some of which are caused uh, are rift lakes. The, the lake that I wrote about is Lake Victoria, um, which is, is formed by a little bit different process. But here's the interesting thing. Uh, scientists estimate that since the last ice age, just 15,000 years ago, something like 500 new species of cichlids arose in that lake, an absolutely astonishing number of different kinds of species. Um, but then people made a decision to introduce a giant predatory fish called the Nile perch in that lake to try and create a new fishery. And they were frankly quite successful in creating a new fishery for these giant fish, but it came at a cost and they gobbled up these little cichlids and many of those 500 species disappeared um, off the planet. And so it's been arguably like the worst example of human caused extinction on the planet because so many species were lost so quickly in one location. At the same time, if you look at those fish today, many of them have since rebounded. They've figured out how to live in the lake with this new predator, and they're showing signs that they're already evolving into some new species that maybe are better at living in the lake as it exists today. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. What about sunrise? What about rain? What about all the things that you said we were to gain? What about killing fields? Is there a time? What about all the things that you said was yours and mine? Did you ever stop to notice all the blood we shed before? Crying earth as we make sure I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Michael Beta-Webster. If you signed up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth. Uh, to do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, and we thank you very much. In return to Michael Maida-Webster, the book, The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth from Timber Press. He is an expert on ecology, conservation, philanthropy, nonprofit management, and his uh, research interests focus on how organisms and ecosystems adapt to environmental change and how that information can be translated into effective conservation strategies. Uh, also, the practical and ethical dilemmas that arise along the way. Uh, he is also, you're at N NYU at the moment? Correct. Yeah, I've just joined this year uh, as a professor of practice in the Environmental Studies Department at NYU. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm assuming that you're, that a lot of students are, are fascinated by this topic and your classes are full. 
Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so I taught a class at NYU a few years ago. I did a couple courses at Cornell last year and raised a lot of these questions. And I think there really is a generation of um, people who have sort of grown up in this world where the climate is changing, where they've heard about environmental issues and species extinctions. And they're very eager to try and figure out what can they do about it. And again, this is part of the reason that I wrote this book is because if you spend enough time in conservation where, you know, I spent most of my professional career, sometimes it gets a little depressing. And sometimes we get sort of caught up in all of the negative stories. And it's not that those negative stories aren't necessarily true. It's more that um, I would argue that it's only part of the story. And so I wanted to write this book to really ask the questions or, about how life is adapting to our changing world and what we can do to help. And, you know, I came out of this process feeling reasonably optimistic about really the power of nature to deal with change and our increasing power to help it. So should the UN, when it issues warnings about global warming, should it also be throwing in some of the things you talk, discuss in this book? Uh, I mean, uh, possibly. I, I don't think that I would. Because this is a global issue, as uh, your book points out. We've been talking about things happening all over the world. Sure. And the UN does have sustainable development goals that focus on, you know, issues related to uh, biodiversity and how people interact with wildlife. And so I would say that these topics are already front and center in how they're thinking about the, the world and the world we're creating. Um, but I would say that from a climate change perspective, you know, climate change is in a lot of ways probably the biggest sort of looming threat for biodiversity on the planet because uh, at the rate we're going, uh, the climate's going to change faster and faster. And, you know, again, the rescue effect is strong for life on Earth, but it's not all powerful. And the thing that it has the hardest time with is really large, really fast change. And so if there's any way that we can really begin to temper what we are going to experience uh, in terms of climate change, that would make an enormous difference. Well, tempering is important, and many suggestions have been made, but it doesn't look like uh, we're going very far in that regard. For uh, certainly cutting, not cutting far down enough. On, cutting down on, on emissions, you know, uh, the, the, it's going to be harder and harder to breathe, according to what we've been hearing. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think that this is really an important moment in our sort of global history as a species to figure out, is this an issue that we are really going to find the resolve to deal with at a global scale? There are plenty of people who want to. There are plenty of new technologies coming online and plenty of ideas about what we can do. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to throw you know, political and economic support behind making it happen because the transition from, say, greenhouse uh, gas producing energy mm. to um, uh, more sustainable long-term energy, it's going to cost some money. And so I think, you know, a lot of what we have to figure out as a species is, is this something that we are going to invest in? And, uh, you know, I tend to And be it becomes optimistic. a political issue as well. Absolutely. And I think those are the main barriers. You know, I don't Within the scientific community, there's not a lot of disagreement about the direction that we're going, and there's not much disagreement about why we're going there. Um, and, you know, I think from an engineering perspective, we've got more and better technologies than we've ever had before. What are the primary uh, sort of impediments to moving forward on climate stuff and climate um, uh, solutions? It probably has more to do with politics uh, and economics than anything else. A former president said that the windmills that can create electricity were causing cancer. Yeah, I'm not aware of any evidence of that. 
uh, in the book, you describe six rescue processes that often happen on their own or are helped by human intervention. Can we go into them? Sure. And a couple of them have already come up. We've talked a little bit about like evolutionary rescue, which is one of those processes that happens in, in nature. But yeah, let's let's take a look at some. Where would you like to begin? Well, where you begin, you know, which which ones you consider most important? Oh, that's a big question. I'm not sure. The, the mm. thing about these processes, so the rescue effect is this overall tendency, and then there's a bunch of things that sit underneath it, and they oftentimes, you know, combine with each other. I think one of the biggest ones that we are seeing right now in action is what I call geographic rescue, mm. and that is species that are moving to new locations in order to um, uh, effectively find the environmental conditions that suit them the best. Um, but, you know, one of the other really interesting ones that um, – comes up in the book is what I call phenotypic rescue. And this is the ability of organisms to change their physiology or their behavior. And they can do it really quickly when the environment around them changes. And it happens with people too. You know, an example of that, a few years ago, I went hiking in the Himalayas and went up to a much higher elevation than I've ever been before. And I didn't have to do anything special uh, regarding my body. It automatically detected that I was in an area where the air was thinner and started turning on special genes, started changing the composition of my blood. My behavior started to change in terms of um, moving more slowly, breathing more deeply. I didn't have to think about any of that. I didn't even have to really know what was going on. It just happened automatically. That sort of change in my phenotype is the words that science, scientists would use to describe that sort of physiology and behavior. That happens automatically and it happens for species everywhere all the time as they're adjusting to small changes in their environment. And it's one of the things that um, helps species the most, especially when um, environmental change is just beginning. Although I assume that if you were less healthy, you might have had serious problems and uh, that would also apply to other animals. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, if you've got, you know, various pre-existing conditions, your physiology may not be as adaptable uh, under different conditions. That would almost certainly be true. You write that, quote, we also need to acknowledge that nature is always has been and will continue changing with or without us. So is the best that we can do to slow things down? Um, to some extent, yeah. So the, the, the passage that you read there is talking about sort of how we even think about conservation as a field. And, you know, I've been working in ecology and conservation for a long time. And a lot of the ideas that I sort of, you know, professionally grew up on were around trying to figure out how to keep nature from changing. You think of like a national park. The idea of a national park is you put borders around it, you protect it, and you try and keep it so that it's the same forever more. Same trees, same animals, same looks, same views. And it's not that that's a bad goal per se, but ecosystems have never really worked like that. They've always been changing as the environment changes, as some species get more abundant, as other species get less abundant, and things um, shift. Right now, things are changing really, really quickly. And so what I would argue in conservation is that we need to take a closer look at that goal which is trying to keep things from changing. And one, recognizing that it's 
not actually that practical, but it also just might not be the right goal, especially in a world that's changing so quickly. The question for things like national parks is how are they going to change and what changes are we going to accept versus which ones are we not and try and make some sort of thoughtful decisions about how we do conservation going forward because species are going to move, ecosystems are gonna shift, that is already happening and more of it is to come. At some point we need to um, uh, start to look at change differently and seeing it as part of the process of adaptation. It's actually a sign in a lot of cases that the rescue effect is working and in and of itself, change is not a bad thing. Well, in some cases, we bring species from other places to, uh, to places where they're not natural. For example, I've done shows on how plants from Asia, trees from Asia and Europe have been brought to parts of the United States uh, where they have kind of overwhelmed the indigenous species uh, and in many cases uh, caused problems because the, the local insects and animals that relied on the indigenous species now don't have those things to rely on. And that's certainly true in some cases that there are species that have been introduced. There are that trees that are dying large... off upstate in New York simply because uh, they uh, foreign illnesses, you know, foreign diseases have been imported. Right. And one of the chapters in the book is about exactly that. It's about the American chestnut tree, which mm -hmm. was affected by an introduced, um, it was a fungal pathogen brought from trees accidentally uh, from Asia that exactly. um, uh, pretty much wiped out that species. Um, and so what you're, the idea that you're getting at is absolutely true. And there are plenty of cases you can look at globally where the introduction of new species has created really big problems. Um, on the flip side, just just to throw it out there, the vast majority of species introductions have not caused that kind of problem. Usually they rather sort of quietly assimilate into local ecosystems, but you don't have to look that hard to find the examples of the ones that get a lot of attention, which are the ones that do cause that kind of harm. Well, some ethical dilemmas arise along the way, don't they? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, especially, consider, for example... Especially when we're trying to uh, uh, create effective conservation strategies. Yeah. I mean, consider the example of the coral reefs in the Caribbean. You know, the Caribbean has been really hit by a whole bunch of different problems um, from pollution to diseases to hurricanes and now to climate change. And the corals that used to, you know, grow quickly and build reefs in the Caribbean, in some places they've declined to the point where they're really not important parts of the ecosystem anymore. And you've got shift from a coral reef ecosystem to a different kind of ecosystem. Now, if you wanted to bring the corals back, you know, it sort of raises the question, well, how far are you willing to go? To go? Are you willing to grow corals and try and plant them out? Are you willing to um, genetically modify them? Are you willing to consider bringing in new species of corals from other parts of the world that maybe can survive in the Caribbean and take over that role for the species that have disappeared? They're all options that are on the table. There's not an easy answer that says this is the right one or this is the wrong one. But these are the kind of ethical dilemmas that are, you know, they're not just in our future. We're already starting to have to address them. I read that 60% of all species are at risk of localized extinction in Madagascar. Why there in particular? So I don't know enough about Madagascar to tell you any, didn't give you any detailed answer. Um, but a lot of the species in Madagascar are, you know, endemic. They're found only in Madagascar and um, potentially in relatively small places. 
um, that makes species more vulnerable to extinction. And what we've seen globally is that, you know, for species like birds and mammals, um, uh, uh, the vast majority of the extinctions that have happened in the last few hundred years because of people were island species. And so they tended to have relatively small ranges. They might not be accustomed to predators in their environment. And so most of the things that we lost over the last few hundred years, again, for birds and mammals, were those island species. You know, Madagascar is an island, it's a big island, but it's an island that evolved on its own for a long time before, you know, relatively recently getting, you know, connected to the rest of the world by people. My guest on today's London Lopated Lodge is Michael Maida Webster. His latest book, The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth, published by Timber Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Don't people sometimes rely on what they consider a species value? Uh, And I was wondering how that applies to saving haplochromines. Yeah. So, um, you know, for good or for ill, people do tend to assign different values to different species. Um, while some people might argue that all species have the same, you know, intrinsic value and we should try to protect them in the same way, you know, I would argue that most people, if you know, confronted with the choice of you can save, you know, chimpanzees on the planet or one of these species of haplochromine cichlids in Lake Victoria. You know, I'd wager most people would probably pick the chimp as something that they identify with and recognize and value in a different way from this other species they've never heard of. The challenge in Lake Victoria was that there were so many species that scientists had not even completed the job of describing them. So we really don't even know what was there. And there were probably several hundred that were lost in that process. And it really does sort of raise the question of, you know, what has been lost from the earth in that in that process, certainly the existence of many species uh, was brought to an end. At the same time, the species that were there seem to have done a pretty good job of adapting to the, the, the species that persisted have done a pretty good job of adapting to the changes today. And, you know, fisheries for the haplochromines, at least when I was doing the research for the book, are doing pretty pretty well right now they've recovered following their huge declines and so that's have they recovered have, on their own or with the help of humans pretty much on their own um you know, people have done very little to explicitly help the haplochromines it's hard to do in a lake um you know a few of the species were taken out when there were worries that they were going to go extinct and raised in tanks with the idea that they might be released back in the lake someday, but only a few species. And as far as I know, none of them have ever gotten to the stage where they've been re-released in the system. Instead, the species that remained um, came back in abundance and some of them are hybridizing. They're creating new combinations that used to be two species are now one species merging together with some new traits. And they seem to be doing well in the new lake and to the point where you know people are able to fish the haplochromines again at levels similar to what they could before the Nile perch was introduced. Mm-hmm. I never even heard of them, but <laughs> until I read your book, um, one of your chapters is headed a bright future, and I looked at that and I thought, really? <laughs> yeah, and you know what I'm getting at in that chapter is that we're at a point in our history where, while the conversation in conservation is always is is often about doom and gloom and all the terrible things that are happening, we're at the very beginning of that process. 
some tiny fraction of 1% of the species on Earth have gone extinct because of humans in our recent history. The vast majority of them are still around, and most of those we can choose to save if we choose to. And so we have a lot of ability to affect what the future of the Earth looks like. We have a lot of agency here. Now, it may be that we make decisions like never dealing with climate change, and um, that creates a whole bunch of, uh, you know, future problems. That's certainly one scenario we could um, uh, find ourselves in. But I tend to be more optimistic than that. And I tend to think that, you know, as a species, we are moving, you know, slowly in the right direction towards dealing with things like climate. And in the meantime, we've actually gotten quite good at helping species persist. And I think what that means is that at least for the foreseeable future, the vast majority of species on this planet are going to persist. And I think that's reasons for, you know, um, being somewhat optimistic and seeing that the bright future certainly is possible. In that chapter, you discuss the concept of nature as an art museum. Yeah, this is getting back at the idea that we were talking about a little bit earlier around what are our expectations for nature and what do we want it, what do we want from it? The nature as art museum is this concept that nature should stay the same, just like a, you know, a great work in a museum. We don't want it to change over time. We want to, we want it to have it sort of persist in that same form in perpetuity. Sometimes we apply that thinking to nature and, and um, I don't think it's always helpful because nature on its own was always changing anyway and it's changing even faster now. I think we're better off if we think about how do we work with the change processes in nature uh, in order to get what we want out of nature um, and you know, provide opportunities for life on earth. I think it's in, in that shift in mentality from stop change to work with change that we'll get to the best outcome in conservation going forward. We have just a couple of minutes left. Is there anything else you want to address before we end this conversation? Sure. I would just say, listen, we've been talking about a lot of big picture ideas here. Um, I would encourage people to take a look at the book. One of the things that I've really tried hard to do is to, rather than just go through these big issues sort of one at a time, as you might do in a textbook, I've tried to really look at some stories about how conservation is happening around the world and sort of invite people in to see what's going on in the world around them, learn something new, maybe have a little fun in a journey through a new ecosystem with some interesting uh, characters. And in the process, slowly sort of reveal what's going on biologically. So one thing that I would really hope is that people have a chance to read this book. I hope they have some fun along the way. And in the end, I hope it gives them sort of an ability to think about how nature is changing um, today and what we can do to help it. How does this apply to the area that uh, we're broadcasting from, the, the New York metropolitan area? Uh, is it different than in other parts of uh, urban areas? No. I mean, listen, New York is obviously – um, you know, one of those places where human footprint is highest on earth. And so the ability, you know, nature isn't going to just persist as it always did in New York. But, you know, I recently moved to Manhattan and have been having a grand time finding, you know, uh, interesting birds here and there. I was watching just this very morning, a Cooper's hawk hunting um, pigeons in the city. So, well, you know, we have lots of parks where, where birds and squirrels seem to be very happy. Yeah, and listen, we're not going to get grizzly bears in you know New York City anytime soon. There's simply too much human footprint for that. Well, there was but a grizzly bear in New Jersey looking. just the other day. But <laughs> I, we've run out of time, unfortunately. But my great thanks to you for being on our show. The, 
Uh, I've been speaking with Michael Maida-Webster, his book, The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth from Timber Press. Thank you so much for being a great guest. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to my executive producer, Keziah Glow, and to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, for all the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking you to be part of a rescue effect for public radio, a public radio experiment that's unlike anything else because at this station we don't take funding credits, we um, don't run ads, uh, we don't take foundation, we don't ask foundations to give us money. We rely 100% on our listening audience to keep us going. Uh, and that's a unique situation. We're the only one in the New York radio dial that is 100% listener-sponsored. Uh, if you do support us, it is tax-deductible. Um, but uh, we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth by Michael Maida Webster. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and the number two, WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. Uh, that You could do that for 10, 15, 20, 25, however many dollars a month you feel comfortable with, and as long as you feel that you want to do that. And it allows us to plan for the future. And we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because, as I said, BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. And we hope that you can join us again on Tuesday. We're going to take Monday off, but we're going to be here on Tuesday, Election Day. And Bob Henley will be joining me to take your calls about this latest election cycle. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.